In Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells the story of a dad and his two elder children. And he tells this story, and, and a number of stories actually, to two different groups of people. As Eugene Peterson in, in the message version puts it, he tells these stories to a group of religious scholars and he tells the stories to a group of what he calls uh, people of doubtful reputation. And Jesus seems to be spending a fair bit of time with people of doubtful reputation, men and women of the time who were considered uh, outside of being living the correct Jewish moral life. They weren't following necessarily the, the Torah. They were considered to be people who lived wildly. They were considered to be the riffraff. They were considered to be uh, almost the social outcasts. And here we find Jesus uh, surrounded by these people. They're drawn to him and he spends a lot of time hanging out with them. Also drawn to him are various theologians, various religious scholars. And they're drawn to him because they're keen to hear what he has to say. They're not very pleased with what he's been saying of late. They're wondering why it is that a man who seems to have a grasp of the Torah, the scripture, as good as, if not better than them, is hanging out with these people, is uh, degrading himself by hanging out with people that are deemed to be less than of his standard. And they're mumbling under their breath and they're talking amongst each other. And I'm not sure if Jesus hears them, but he clearly understands what it is that they're thinking and by their posture that they're not particularly impressed with this scene that is before them. A man surrounded by social outcasts eating meals with them. And in Jesus' time, as in our time, eating a meal with uh, a group of people essentially said that you respected them, that you accepted them, that you welcomed them. And so there's this perception that Jesus accepts the people that he's hanging out with. And so they're saying stuff like, oh man, he, he takes in sinners. He, he eats meals with them. He, he's treating them like old friends. And so Jesus goes on to tell three stories. He wants to challenge their thinking, both groups of people, both the people of doubtful reputation and both the religious scholars. And he tells three stories about the lost being found. And the third story he shares is the story that uh, we often know as the parable of the prodigal son. It's a story about a dad and his two kids, two children that, as I said, are representative of the two groups of people that are essentially in Jesus' presence. The older child in Jesus' story is a model citizen. He's a hard worker. He, he works for his father. He works on the in the family business, essentially. He would be a person that the religious scholars, whilst they may not necessarily um, admire him, they certainly would have been able to uh, relate to and respect this figure in Jesus' story. And in contrast, the younger child is essentially deemed to be reckless. He's deemed to be wasteful. And this is where the phrase or the term prodigal son comes from. Prodigal means wastefully or recklessly extravagant. It means lavishly abundant, giving or yielding profusely. 
And this is what we see of the younger son's life. His approach to life, his approach to money is prodigal. It's extravagantly reckless. It's lavishly abundant. He, he takes the inheritance uh, that is owed to him early and, and he goes out and he uses it to, to see the world. But what we glean from the story is that he squanders his inheritance. He loses every single earthly possession that he owns. He becomes bankrupt. He essentially loses everything. And we find uh, he finds himself so desperate to make ends meet that he's essentially eating pig food, which at that time would have been particularly um, abhorrent to the religious scholars of the time because pigs, you didn't eat pigs. Pigs were unclean. Pigs uh, were only the food of the Romans or the Gentiles of the time. And so he hits rock bottom. He's doesn't know what to do, and the only thing that he can think to do is to go and throw himself on the mercy of his father, hoping that just maybe, maybe, if he begs hard enough or if he says the right things or whatever he does, that his father may not take him back as a son, but will take him back as a hired servant, someone who can just make ends meet, who can still not eat pig food. He knows he deserves nothing. He's afraid. He's not sure how his father is going to respond. He thinks that maybe his father will be angry with him, but he tries anyway. And like the younger child, like the younger son, I think that we often have a view of God, if we consider him to be real at all, that he's distant, that he's judgmental, that he's angry that he either ignores us or he's just waiting, ready to strike us down at at, at the wrong turn, to punish us for making poor choices, and that when we stuff up, we're going to get it. Bad things are going to happen. And to be fair, bad things do happen to the younger son, but it's nothing to do with the father's choices. It's essentially the choices that he's made. And so we fear things about God. We fear that God doesn't exist. We fear that he's out to get us. We fear that maybe he doesn't care. And so in Luke 15, verse 20, we read, So the younger son got up, and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. That's an interesting response. This is not the response of an angry uncaring, judgmental father. He doesn't seek to add to his son's woes. He doesn't lecture him. He doesn't punish him. His response is not to go back to the house and get a belt and come out and give him a good whooping. His response is not to get the servants to lock the doors. His response is not to send a servant down the road to meet him halfway and say, look, sorry, don't waste your time you're dead to your father, just get on with your life. He doesn't do any of those things. The the father's response, even while his son is a long way off, it says, before his son sees him, before his son can even say a word, is compassion. Now, the word here, compassion, that's used in, in the Greek text that they translate it from, 
is a word that I'll probably pronounce incorrectly, um, and it's a long word, but it's splagnitsomai. Splagnitsomai. And it means, essentially, to have the bowels yearn. To have the bowels yearn. Splagnitsomai refers to a yearning of the guts. Uh, it's not a painful thing, but it's kind of this gut-wrenching compassion is essentially what it means. It's, it's the same word that's used uh, in uh, the account of Jesus feeding the 5,000. He looks out on, on this whole host of people that have followed him uh, essentially out into the wilderness and, and has compassion on them. And that word is the same word there. It's just this gut-wrenching compassion which prompts him to feed 5,000 people. It's not just an act of obligation. It's not this resignation of, oh, they're here now. I better do something about it. It's such an overwhelming reaction that it almost spontaneously draws a physical response. Splagnitsomai. And this is the word that's used here to describe the father's response to his younger child. And so what we see is that Jesus is painting a picture of God's heart for humanity. He's painting a picture of God's heart for creation. He's painting a picture of God's heart for his younger child. The father is moved with compassion and he's moved so much that he runs and he runs and he runs and, and, and he grabs his younger child and he embraces him and, and he, he just shows such overwhelming affection. He showers kisses on him. Splagnitsomai. There's a word that we use in our household. It's not that word. Um, and we pronounce it deliberately incorrect. There's words that we don't pronounce deliberately incorrect, but this word we deliberately pronounce incorrect. And the reason that we do that is because, uh, for us anyway, we feel like it kind of adds this extra passion to the word. And the word is passionate, but we pronounce it passionate. So, so the context that we use it in is, you know, look at one of our kids and they're a bit cranky or something and it'll be like, do you need me to passionate you? Come on, come here. I'm going to passionate you. It's, it's onomat what's the word? Onomatopoeic. That's it, onomatopoeic. It kind of sounds a bit more like uh, what it is. Um, and so in our household, sometimes there's a lot of passionating going on. We uh, are prone in our household, I don't know, I think it's a condition or something, but sometimes if we don't take a deep breath as parents, my wife and I, our kids get passionate because we just can't help ourselves. We just want to grab them and uh, passionate. There are often prodigal displays of passion in our household. And this is the word that Jesus uses in this story. What we see in this story is that it's not only the younger child who demonstrates prodigal behaviour. What we see in this story is that the father too is prone to prodigal behaviour. He's prone to prodigal displays of passion for both of his children. And we, and we see that further in the story. The, the father's so overwhelmed and so excited and wants to celebrate that his younger son has come home. And so he calls out to the servants, you know, dress him, clean him, dress him. Let's get the fattened calf. Let's throw a party. Let's, let's celebrate his return. And the older child gets wind of this. The older child's been out 
in his mind at least, slaving in the fields. And the older child resents his younger brother's prodigal nature and his prodigal behaviour. In fact, he despises him for it. He becomes embittered by it. And the father realises that the older child is missing and he goes looking for him. And when he finds him, he passionately implores his, his older son to, to come back and, and to join in the party. He, he pours out his heart to him. But in the story, at least, the, the older child refuses. You just get this sense that he's enraged. How, how dare, how dare his father show his younger, reckless, foolish, stupid sibling... How dare he show him such ridiculous acts of compassion, grace and love? What, what did he do to deserve it? Nothing. Nothing. And you know, if we're honest, if I'm honest at least, I think we like grace and love best when it applies to us. But we don't always like it so much when it's given to those who in our mind we believe don't deserve it who in our mind deserve retribution. We want people to get what they deserve in a good way, but we also want people to get what they deserve in a bad way. We, we often apply a different rule of love to other people than we do to ourselves. And we see this in Jesus' time too. In, in almost every case, almost every encounter where, where Jesus encounters a, a person or a group of people of doubtful reputation and, and either a single person or a group of people who are deemed to be the, the knowledgeable religious scholars of the day, the people of doubtful reputation are drawn to Jesus and the ones who have a moral standing are repelled by him. Often, our greatest source of resentment of God is actually his grace and his love. We so desperately want him to pour out the just deserts on the people that we decide deserve to be punished. But clearly in this story, the dad loves all his children as different as they are. It's clear that he is a father of deep passion and deep compassion for his children. He's a generous father. He's a gracious father. He's a loving father. He's a prodigal father. The younger son is astounded by the father's prodigal love and the older son is infuriated by it. And so Jesus seeks to challenge both, both groups, both opinions, both understandings and shatter their understanding of who they think God is. I think what is possibly the most infuriating to the older child in Jesus' story and the religious scholars in the audience is that Jesus doesn't really offer a reasonable justification for this behaviour. There's no clear rationale. Why? Why should the father respond like this? It's, it's unreasonable. It's reckless. It makes no sense. It doesn't seem to line up with their understanding of who God is. And, you know, I'm big on reason. I'm big on why. I like to ask why. I really like to get to the heart of a matter. And I, I think that's a good thing. I think it's a good thing. I think it's good to ask why. I think that curiosity and creativity are the drivers of human advancement. They're the drivers 
of human endeavor. We, we want to discover. We want to explore. We want to understand. We, we question. We want to know why. It's important. And it's important because I think when we cease to question, when we feel like we have all the answers, when we've got everything worked out, when we lose our curiosity, when we lose our sense of wonder, then I think we become less human. But when it comes to this story, and when it comes to love, there's this thought that I can't shake. What if there's no why? What if there's no why? What if love is its own reason? What if love is its own reason? One of our core values it found is that we are a people of good news. And what Jesus is sharing here in this story to both the religious scholars and the people of doubtful reputation is the good news. The good news is that the Father is moved with compassion for his children. The good news is that if we want to know what God is like, we only need to look to Jesus. The good news is that we're all invited to the table. Both groups of people are invited to the table. The good news is that the love of God is prodigal. The good news is that the love of God is reckless. The good news is that he is radical and subversive in his love. The good news is that love doesn't need a reason doesn't need a reason. It doesn't need a why. Love doesn't ask why because love is the why. In Matthew 25, 31 to 40, uh, we read this scripture last week. The author shares a fascinating scenario in which Jesus tells a story about a group of people who are being commended for their actions. They're being commended for helping the hungry and the thirsty and the stranger and the naked and the prisoner. And in this story, what the people don't know at the time, until it's pointed out to them, is that the hungry, the thirsty, the, the stranger, the naked, the prisoner, were what Mother Teresa describes as Jesus in disguise. They're essentially helping Jesus in disguise. Why? Why did they do it? Why did they meet the needs of these people? Why did they feed them? Why did they quench their thirst? Why did they clothe them? Why did they visit them? Why did they welcome them? They weren't doing it to be good Christians. They weren't doing it because they knew it was Jesus in disguise. They didn't have this story. They're part of the story. They weren't doing it to, to, we don't get this sense anyway, they weren't doing it to rack up a tally. They weren't doing it because they seemed to have some kind of moral imperative uh, they weren't doing it to, for recognition. They weren't doing it for reward. They weren't doing it to be celebrated. And so the only reason that I can come up with, the only rationale for their actions, is love. Love. Because love is its own reason. So what does this mean for our lives? What does a faith community who will be known by their love look like? This might be a little bit controversial. Have you ever noticed that the king, when he is commending people for caring for the other, doesn't say, he doesn't say, I was unsaved and you saved me. He doesn't say that. Our role, our task, our responsibility, our reason for existence is not to save people. Christianity doesn't give us a mandate to become God. 
Christianity doesn't give us a mandate to become people's great hope, to become their saviour. The, the only mandate that we're given is love. And love is its own reason. God's love is for every single aspect of our lives. It, it's not just for the spiritual, it's for the secular. It's not just for the personal, it, it's for the community. It's not just for home, it's for the workplace. And wherever possible, our primary motivator, our primary reason should be love. It's not always my motivator, it's not always my reason, but it should be. It should be the reason for how I raise and encourage my kids. It should be the reason for how I relate to and support my wife. It should be the reason for how I relate to my neighbour. It should be the reason for how I relate to my enemy. It should be the reason for, for why it is that I want to bring change and growth in my life. It should be the reason that I care for creation and the world that we live in. It should be the reason that, that we pursue peace rather than war. It should be the reason that we want reconciliation with the first peoples of our nation. It should be the reason that we want to end a regime of unnecessarily punishing people because they flee a war-torn country by boat. Does love mean that we tolerate abusive or violent situations? No. Uh, love protects. Love doesn't harm. Is my love perfect? No, I'm not perfect. Is my love fallible? Yes, I am fallible. Do I seek to follow Jesus whose love is extravagant and abundant? Yes, because love is the why. And that's the good news for my life. Jesus' story reveals the destructive self-centeredness of the younger brother, but it also challenges in the strongest terms the elder brother's moralistic, judgmental life. Jesus tells us that love is its own reason, that love is the why, and that this is the good news. So, back to that question. What does a faith community who will be known by their love look like? You didn't really think I was going to answer that question for you, did you? I'm not going to prescribe the answer. Even if I wanted to, I actually can't describe it, at least not yet. Partly because as a community we're three weeks old and partly because I think that whilst love is about unity, it's actually not about conformity. It looks different for different people. And so, yes, we're unified in our love for Jesus and for each other and for our neighbour and for our enemy, but that doesn't mean it all looks the same. And so next week, we're going to share on another one of our values, which is we make room. And as part of that process, we're going to try something, and we're not going to put people on the spot, we're not going to make you talk in front of, uh, of a crowd, but we're going to try and do something that will be a little bit more interactive. And what we want to do is begin to explore and begin to describe essentially what that might look like, what it might look like for you both individually and over time uh, collectively, what it might look like when framed by our values, what it means to be known for our love. So we're going to explore that a bit next week. How it is that you and us want to outwork love in our own life and in a faith community. That's for next week. 
I'm going to pray. Jesus, help us to live out your gospel, your good news in our lives and in the world. We pray that when it comes to love, that we increasingly understand that love is its own reason. May we be willing to live a life in which love is the why. Form us into a community, Lord, that runs deeper than biology or nationality or ethnicity, a community that is born again in you. Reveal to us individually, reveal to me individually, reveal to us collectively what it means to be known by your love. Redeem and renew us in your grace and in your love and in your peace. Amen. Amen.